it's almost that time of year when the bishop gets up and reads the appointments. Ministers and wives go home and pack boxes and move on to the next place. Carlene's been having dreams of having to pack up and move, and I keep reassuring her that the bishop can't appoint me anywhere. <laughs> but this leads me to tell about this fellow who was moved to a church from a church that he didn't want to leave. He loved that church. He begged not to be moved, but it didn't do any good. He was moved anyway. When he got to his new appointment, Almost every time he got up to preach, he found some way to talk about Jonesville, where he had left. <laughs> After a while, the congregation got aware of the fact that he couldn't break away from Jonesville, that that was the most wonderful place on earth. So time passed. This elderly lady in the church was at the point of dying, and so she said she wanted to have a last prayer in church before she got so ill that she couldn't attend. They granted her that privilege. And she concluded her prayer with, Lord, when I die, receive me to heaven. But if I can't make it to heaven, at least let me get to Jonesville. <laughs> the book of Proverbs which we have been studying. Today is the 11th chapter, and the entirety of the chapter is one proverb after another. Doublets, two-line, pithy sayings, each one with an affirmation and a counter-affirmation on each. If we were to study Scripture from the standpoint of the content of each verse, there's a lesson in each of the Proverbs. So how are you going to study a chapter that is nothing but a listing of Proverbs, each one with an entirely different meaning from the others? The lesson writer, in anticipating that, combined all of the Proverbs generally under three headings, having to do with integrity, having to do with righteousness, having to do with community. And I'm going to honor that overall heading for what we talk about today concerning these Proverbs. The most valuable thing that we can get from a study of the book of Proverbs is the realization that life is complex. No one really can sit down and understand the full ramifications of what life is all about. The Proverbs is an attempt to interpret so many of these mysteries. But from the very beginning, the point was made by the writer that in order to evaluate life, in order to understand life, in order to make proper choices in life, you have to approach it from one of two vantage points. One, the vantage point of wisdom. Wisdom is God-given, according to the writer of Proverbs, and it allows us to make assessment, to evaluate, and to make choices through God's mind. But there is a contrary position. If you do not possess wisdom, then you possess folly. These are words that the writer uses. Folly or wisdom. 
you view life through one or the other. And of course, he advocates our using wisdom in understanding and evaluating life and making our choices in living. Now, proverbs have a great value because they are very cryptic in putting over ideas and thoughts that we can imprint in our minds and recall at leisure without having to go to much depth study. Poor Richard's Almanac by, uh, is, is full of a pithy saying similar to the book of Proverbs. And we quote so often from Poor Richard's Almanac. And we discover there, as we do in the book of Proverbs, that so many Proverbs are contradictory. <coughs> one proverb will make one affirmation and another will contradict it. For example, a stitch in time saves nine. But haste makes waste. So how do you bring these two totally different attitudes and concepts into an understanding that neither is wrong? It takes wisdom to see what is meant by each and not just what appears to be on the surface. Without wisdom, one can just accept it, affirm it, live by it, and never really utilize it to their own benefit and good. So in studying the book of Proverbs with each of the Proverbs brought into our consciousness, there is a way to look at it beyond the simple words that express the idea. And we do it through wisdom or we do it through folly. And the consequences of our lives based upon the teachings that we get is dependent upon which way in which we evaluate in which way we look at life. Proverbs is full of rich insights. And to put them into our memory that we can bring out from time to time for reassurance is one of the real values of the book of Proverbs. Jesus accomplished the same thing with his parables because it would be difficult to comprehend everything that Jesus said in the course of his lifetime unless we were to systematize it. And in order to systematize it in a way that we can remember it, put it in the form of a story. And that's exactly what Jesus did. We remember the stories. And as we recall the stories, then we can recall the lesson that Jesus was trying to teach. So one of the primary concepts in understanding, evaluating life, and living the way in which God wants us to live is to look with minds filled with wisdom at integrity. So many of the Proverbs have to do with integrity. When I was thinking about the lesson, I wanted to humanize it, not just simply talk in the realm of philosophy best represents integrity in their lives. And I didn't have to think long as far as I'm personally concerned. Abraham Lincoln, a man of total integrity, unless historians in here want to take issue with me. <laughs> but the point that brought me to introduce Abraham Lincoln was it hath always been said that Abraham Lincoln was a man of such total honesty 
that as a young man operating a store, discovered at the end of the day that he had shortchanged one of his customers just a matter of pennies. And after he closed the store, he walked for miles to return those pennies to the customer who had been shortchanged. Now, I wasn't sure whether that actually happened or it was one of these myths that we build around famous people like George Washington throwing a dollar over the Delaware River or chopping down a cherry tree and said, I have to confess because I can't tell a lie. It may have happened, but most historians say these are myths. And so I decided that I was going to determine whether or not this actually was a fact in the life of Abraham Lincoln or whether it was just a myth that was built around him. I have a comprehensive library on Lincoln because he's one of my favorite subjects. I have one book, cost me $50, so you can imagine how I thought the value of the book would be for my library, has nothing but contemporary writings and pictures about Abraham Lincoln. Historians are out of the picture altogether. No evaluations by others. Simply the manuscripts and the pictures that were a part of his life. And I searched through and I found the telling of the incident. So it actually happened. But also there was an interview with his mother who said, my son never told a lie in his entire life. My son never spoke a word of profanity in his entire life. My son never tried to be a, find some for a scapegoat for anything that he had done. He faced up to responsibilities and took the punishment that went with it. But this was a mother talking, wasn't it? <laughs> but I still come back to the point that Abraham Lincoln is a man of such integrity that he was able to pull our country together again after a war that totally destroyed confidence from one section of the country to the other. He wanted to bind the wounds, not to punish anyone, but to bring back together again that had been lost in the fighting of the war. A man of integrity. But we don't have to go back to Abraham Lincoln. When I was pastor of the church in Gatlinburg, we had visitors cards in the pew and we encouraged visitors to write a comment on the back of the card. And I got comments, some I filed away and some I threw in a wastebasket <laughs> quickly. But one particular Sunday morning, of course I didn't read the card until much later, but there was a man, middle-aged man, who approached me after the service as he left the church, paused for a minute and he said, I'm deeply appreciative of your sermon this morning. You gave me reassurances that I need. My sermon that morning was trying to live facing the wind. And he said, I have been facing gales in my life and I needed what you said to me this morning. After the service was over and the cards, visitors' cards were collected. I always wrote a letter to each one who had visited on Monday morning and I came upon the one that I knew was his because he had expressed the same thing on the card. There have been gales blowing in my life and your sermon was most helpful to me. I got my copy of Time Magazine on Tuesday and there was his picture and an article about him. He was pastor of First Baptist Church in Birmingham had been pastor of First Baptist Church in Washington and had gone to Birmingham, one of the top 
leaders in the Baptist church and one from whom much was expected at his present youth. But this was in the 60s. He dared to bring a black woman into the membership of the church. He dared try. The congregation voted against her coming in and there were many voices raised up against him because of his audacity in trying to break the color line and bring a black person into that church. He'd come to Gatlinburg because it was one of his favorite resorts. He spent many vacations there where he could get apart and think things through. And so he had come to Gatlinburg as an article appeared in the paper telling of what had happened in Birmingham. Later I learned that he went back home, resigned his position in the church, declaring that he could not serve a congregation who were so closed to human compassion and love. How could he ever seek to build a kingdom among people like that? And he resigned his position. Well, in the Baptist church, you just aren't reappointed like we are in the Methodist church. You can kick up a mess of trouble, and the bishop will just move you over somewhere else where you can kick up more trouble. <laughs> but he left the Baptist church, resigned his position. Didn't hear any more about it for about four or five years, and then I read where he was appointed to a little church in Holson Conference as a Methodist minister. He served that little country church for about three years and then died of a heart attack. He had total integrity. A man of great position. A man whose future was unlimited. But was faced with a condition in which he had to resolve, do I take a stand and pay the price or do I sweep it aside and go on as though it never occurred? He was a man of integrity. How badly we need people of integrity today. Now here's where I stop teaching and start preaching. Look at the sports figures. Integrity, taking those body producing drugs so that they can compete against others who are not willing to cheat in their competition in the Olympics on the baseball field, no integrity in the part of a person in competition who would do something that would give them an unfair advantage over those with whom they are in competition. Look at the big major corporations of America. How many CEOs have been on trial because of what they have done that has affected the stockholders and other people out of their own unwillingness to apply integrity to the positions that they hold. We need integrity in the leadership of the corporations of America that so greatly affect the lives, not only of stockholders, but all persons. Now, let's walk into the political picture. This morning's paper talked about uh, a new investigation of corruption in the House and in the Senate. Not just Republicans, Democrats as well. This is not a political statement that I'm making. I'm talking about all who are elected to serve the country but intend to serve themselves instead. And we find so many charges against leaders whom we have elected to make this a great country, but they will compromise the country for the sake of their own selfish interests. There 
needs to be a reaffirmation of integrity on all levels of our society if we are to remain and regain the greatness that our nation is. Well, integrity is that one thing above everything else that the writer of our lesson talks about as the different sayings having to do with one's behavior point to the fact that God expects us to be people of integrity above everything else. And the second point that our writer brought out over the Proverbs of this lesson is righteousness. And he's quick to point out that when he speaks of righteousness, that is the writer of Proverbs, he's not talking about righteous living per se, he's talking about a righteousness in attitude and behavior that reflects a commitment to God. When we commit our lives to God, when we accept Him as the force in our lives, we behave differently from people who do not accept God and who do not give Him that kind of priority. It's not a matter of is it in the Bible wrong to do this. I've been asked so many times on such insignificant things. What does the Bible say about it? I don't care what the Bible says about it. If your mind is in focus with God, you know within yourself what's right and what's wrong. You don't go to the Bible to find an excuse to do something that you know is wrong. How often we do. And when we try to proof our own beliefs by verses in the Bible, we've lost track of the fact that it is God's inspiration to us that tells us what's right and what's wrong. On his deathbed, the father of John Wesley said to him, it is the inward witness, my son. That's the most important thing. It is the inward witness. If we think it's wrong, but we can find somewhere where it says it's all right, then we are violating what God has said to us. It is in righteous living in which we try to reflect God's mind, God's attitude, God's leading, and we don't go out and try to find rules that will enable us to live by our own prejudices and our own limited understandings. Repeatedly, the writer of Proverbs says, live righteous lives. And then the third point with, as we run out of time is community. The writer of Proverbs says that we must live in community. John Wesley said there is no such thing as an individual religion, that all religion has to be experienced in community. We come together for Holy Communion, and it is as the word describes we are in communion with one another and with God as we partake as a family. God created units in which we live because there is no such thing as living a solitary life. John Don says when one point of the, of the seashore breaks away that the whole continent is affected, that what affects one person affects us all. We cannot live a solitary religion. We live in community. When we go to college, we join fraternities and sororities so we can surround ourselves with people with like interests with whom we can grow. Family units are so important in the rearing of children so that there are forces within the family that 
supply the things that are needed for proper growth and living. And in adulthood, a Sunday school class like this is a community, it's a family where we can grow as we share and as we support one another's burdens and as we share our understandings with others to enhance their way of living and doing. Community is so important. And the church today is vulnerable to a society that tries to undermine what the, really the church can be and what it is. Well, there are things being projected that for those who are deeply committed in their faith, who are still vulnerable to ideas that are not sound over the centuries having been proven. Introducing ideas that weaken our community of faith is detrimental to the strength of the church. It is very important that we have fellowship within a community in order to grow instead of isolating our thinking and thinking individually, which is not supported by the insight and the input of the whole. So these three things the writer of Proverbs attempts to discuss the importance of integrity, the importance of righteousness, and the importance of community. chance to uh, just tell you how much I appreciated your thoughts and your prayers and your vigilance while we were over there uh, in Iraq. It meant a lot. I tell you what, it was, uh, I think over the course of the entire seven months and one week, I don't think one mail call went by when there wasn't uh, at least one letter or package or something from, from this class. It meant a lot to us. It did, it did ride by a lot of Marines. And, uh, but more importantly, your thoughts and your prayers were, uh, were critical to us. We went over with 368 Marines and we brought back all 368, which is <laughs> Uh, easy thing to do these days over there, unfortunately, but uh, that, that was very critical to us, and I appreciate your, your doing that, and certainly for watching out for, for my mom there. That meant as much as anything else to me than uh, anything else you could have done. So, thanks. You're always welcome.